This morning's text is Isaiah 62, verse 8 through 63, 14, but I will read that in due course. Is your view of God simple or complex? It will make all the difference because your life is filled with complexity. There's nothing simple about strained relationships, inconclusive diagnoses, legal battles, marriage counseling, growing up, getting old, caring for others, making ends meet, or the myriad other things you're dealing with every day. Is your God simple? Or is he complex enough to be up to the task? I read a kinesiology study this week, yes, because I'm a nerd. It was about the act of picking up a cup of coffee. 27 bones and 39 muscles giving rise to more than 20 biomechanical degrees of freedom for volitional movement. On the surface, a very simple act, you pick up a cup of coffee. But complexity is below the surface, or it simply wouldn't work. This morning's passage is superficially simple, clearly a three-part structure. Part one, a look at the blessings of eternity with God. Part three, a reminder of the steadfast love of God that will get us there. But between them is part two, an image of Christ, a conquering warrior covered in blood. Revelations of mercy, blessing, and love. And in the middle, a revelation of wrath, vengeance, and crushing anger. Amid a chaotic week, I relied heavily on Ray Ortland's commentary for this sermon structure. He writes, future promise, past faithfulness, bloody vengeance, all in one passage. Why? Because God is not a simplistic person. He's complex. Is God kind or severe? Should we fear him or love him? Isaiah says, yes. Verse 8, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. The Lord will save his people. He will save his people in Israel, restoring what they've squandered. He will gather his people from the ends of the earth, saving and uniting them into the true Israel, the church. 
The city that appeared forsaken will flourish. His people will worship him rightly with undivided hearts. And they will inhabit a land of justice, a well-ordered world. What's the life you've always imagined? Your work is productive and without toil. Your relationships are mutually edifying and without conflict. You are content with all that you have, and you have all that you need. The life of God's promise has all that and more. What he's offering through eternity with him lacks nothing. The security and satisfaction that we seek out everywhere but God, he will give them to us in full. We won't be anxious or doubt or lament. Of course, implicit in Isaiah's revelation is that we could live that way now. That's how certain the promise is. By faith, we can live as though the inheritance is in our possession already. Because when God is the one who makes this promise, it's no less sure when it's out there in the future than it is when it's presently in our hands. The promises feel vague to us only because we approach them vaguely. But look carefully at the words, because it should encourage us to see that in his covenantal love, God blesses his people with great specificity. The language of planting and harvesting in their own lands is a powerful promise to people who were removed and sent into exile. And to nations that were ceremonially unclean and always outside of the covenant, a welcoming highway to open gates is a remarkable invitation. Think about the complex challenges of your life. What do they need? Does God not promise you those things in Christ? Think about it carefully. In each of those situations, there's a very particular outcome that you want that God does not promise. But isn't the reason you really want that outcome because of a deeper need, significance, love, or acceptance, or value? enjoyment, or safety. And doesn't God promise you all of those things in him? It seems like the promise of them should make a difference even now. That's a good Sunday afternoon meditation, I think. What difference does it make in my life right now that I am a certain recipient of God's promises? As chapter 63 begins, the tone changes dramatically. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. 
and from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and poured out their lifeblood on the earth. In the last section, Isaiah told us that God had set watchmen on the walls of Zion. And here he speaks as one of those observing someone approaching from the distance. Isaiah is looking out across the horizon from the complexity of his own life. And a simple God cannot help him. There's just too much in life that can overwhelm. But in the distance, the one who approaches praised a few verses ago for his gracious salvation reveals himself as anything but simple. Look at the language in verses 3 through 6. Trodden, anger, trampled, wrath, lifeblood spattered, vengeance, trampled, anger, wrath, poured out their lifeblood. Here marches in one from Eden in splendid apparel, marching in the greatness of his own strength. Remember that Edom was the territory of the descendants of Esau. Edom hated Israel and looked to harm and persecute her whenever possible. That's why when the prophets evoke Edom, they're talking about more than just Edom. One teacher explains that Edom represents the human being at its worst, despising God, finding itself in earthly joys, and persecuting God's people because of their loyalty to him. Isaiah the watchman sees one marching in from the direction of Edom, from the direction of the world and its persecution of God's people. And and this one is marching utterly alone. There is no one with him. No one helped him. No one could stand with him. And he marches to Jerusalem. He marches to the people of God with red, blood-spattered garments because he has slaughtered his enemies, trampling them in his wrath. This was the battle for the redemption of his people. Entirely one-sided, hardly a battle, actually. This was the Savior's act of vengeance against the enemies of God and his people. This isn't the pacifist, hippie Jesus of movies and miniseries. This is the warrior Jesus of Isaiah and Revelation and Matthew and Hebrews, Thessalonians, Romans, and the Psalms. C.S. Lewis captured the spirit of this Jesus well when Lucy asked Mr. Beaver, is is he a man? Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Aslan is a lion, the great lion. Lucy, is he safe? Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. 
That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's any who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And I wonder if we share the beaver family's reverence. Christ is not safe, but he is good. And in that goodness, what the Bible calls his steadfast love, in that goodness is the only real safety we will ever find. A safe Christ is a simple Christ. And if your Christ is simple, the complexities of life will be what overwhelms you. But if Christ is what overwhelms you, nothing in this world can separate you from the love of God in him. Another pastor wrote, God wants us to fear wisely. He wants us to redirect our fears from passing human crises to the final divine crisis He wants us to concern ourselves most urgently with the question, who is this? And the answer is not simplistic. He is the lamb, but he is also the lion. We probably don't have much experience with blood-stained garments, but we do have some experience with wrath. Only our wrath is rather not like Christ's. Human wrath can be for all kinds of reasons, as many are bad as good. We can direct wrath at real injustice and defiance of God's love and mercy. But we can also direct it at annoyance, unintentional mistakes, and defiance of our preferences. Christ's wrath is always and only directed against evil. It's directed at those who have finally resisted his grace, rejected his love, and made war on his people. That's why we should trust him more than we trust ourselves when it comes to vengeance. Vengeance belongs to him because he will do it justly. We simply cannot discriminate so carefully. We do not make those judgments rightly. But thankfully, the lamb, who is also a lion, does. And he will tread his enemies underfoot. But I thought God was love. I thought Jesus was the great peacemaker. He is. But he is not simple. He makes peace the only way everlasting peace can be made by subduing his enemies, righting all wrongs, and ridding the earth of evil and its possibilities. He's a conquering warrior with garments soaked in the blood of those trodden by his wrath. He is to be loved and feared. He is good, but he is not safe. In verse 7, Isaiah returns to that goodness. 
It is everlasting. The steadfast love of the Lord is forever. Verse 7, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and to the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and he himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. You see, the way we survive an encounter with this warrior Christ is by casting ourselves on his covenantal goodness. His steadfast love is what keeps us safe. It's not our behavior or anything of our own doing. Look at verse 10. Isaiah reminds us of the historical unfaithfulness of God's people. He was faithful. He made a promise. And they rebelled. They grieved his Holy Spirit. We, individually, and as his church, we can relate. But even when we are unfaithful, God remembers his covenant. He remembers his promise to save us for his own glory, and he keeps that covenant. His abundant love remains steadfast. In this section, Isaiah is using every word he can think of to solidify the image of this faithfulness in our minds. Steadfast love, all that the Lord has granted us, great goodness, according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. They are my people. He became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, saved them, love and pity, redeemed them, lifted them up, carried them what more must he do? How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. It's a love for people who do not deserve it. It's an abundant love. It doesn't run out because we wander or we fail or we turn to not God's rather than God. It's love that forgives us 70 times 7. It's love that cares about our growth in closeness to him, giving us word and spirit to that end. In the complexity and tumult of this world, God points us ever back to the security and certainty of his covenant with us. What difference does it make that God has made these covenantal promises to us? What effect should they have, not just then, but now? One teacher says they should stabilize us. 
stabilize us. They stabilize us as we wait for Christ to come with his final intervention. Are you being stabilized in the covenantal love of God? Is it your anchor in the complexity of this world? The Apostle Jude told us, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Christian, are you keeping yourself in that love? Are your hopes for security and satisfaction content in him? Because from the abundance of his love, he will provide them. What about your hopes for vengeance? These two are to be handed over to God's covenantal love. That's where they're safe and they're right. It's poison to keep the hope for vengeance for yourself But in God's hands, he will do with it what is right. He may yet redeem your enemies. As he did with you and I turning enemies into friends. Or having ultimately resisted his grace, he may trample them in his wrath. But this much is sure. He will do what is right. Your life is complex. There's much going on and there are many factors to consider. There's no easy solution that's going to work. Maybe easy on one level. Know God in his steadfast love. It is that easy. Know God in his steadfast love. But it will work because he's not simple. He's complex. In fact, he's complex enough to overwhelm us. If we would just be overwhelmed by God, if we would be overwhelmed by his love, we could never be overwhelmed by the world. If we have a vision of Christ in his glorious victory and covenantal love, then our vision of all else, of everything else that threatens or troubles us, will indeed become strangely dim. One last quotation from Dr. Ortland. Isaiah invites us to look at the grandeur of God. This text is a biblical grand canyon. Step up to the edge. Take a long, thoughtful look. And see more of God than you have ever seen before. It's helpful. It's helpful because we look at the world today and we see the brutality, the sufferings, the insecurity of our own lives. And we wonder, God, are you asleep? Won't you do something about all this? You have the power. Why won't you act? That's the way we think, looking at our surroundings. But when we step up to the edge of that canyon, 
when we look beyond this world, when we enlarge our vision of God and accept him for all that he is, our frustrations melt and we are strengthened to face anything. Anything. What is it you need right now in the complexity of life? Will not he in his steadfast love provide it? Do you have trouble? Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. What is it you need right now? Is it satisfaction? For he satisfies the longing soul. Is it forgiveness for sin and rebellion? Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of darkness and burst their bonds apart. He sent out his word and healed them. What is it you need? Is it the calming of life's storms? Some went down to the sea in ships. Their courage melted away in their plight. They reeled and staggered and were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Need I go on? I could. I could go on and on from Psalm 107 because the psalmist knows with all of his heart what we need to know with ours, that whatever the complexity we're facing, whatever the difficulty, whatever threatens to overwhelm, whatever is too much for us, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever.